0: What does your zero-carbon roadmap look like?
1: Maybe you've just been mulling whether your next car will be electric.
0: But you're listening to the Engineering Matters podcast, so maybe you've gone further.
1: You've perhaps been monitoring your power use with a smart meter, identifying where the worst waste occurs, giving yourself a baseline to measure progress against
0: or tracking energy prices and grants, working out when it's best to switch to a heat pump, or how to insulate your home to receive the most benefit from that switch.
1: At home, the road to net zero is normally simple. Replace directly used fossil fuels with electric power, keep that power use efficient and source it from renewables.
0: But in the wider world, our path to net zero is not always so simple.
1: Some processes require so much power that they cannot be fueled from the grid.
0: Or they cause carbon emissions, not just through their power use, but as part of the process itself.
1: A business like that will need to follow a very different road to net zero.
0: And for those industries that need to look beyond electrification, these roads can converge, potentially snarling progress, as different sectors all try to take the same constricted route away from fossil fuel use.
1: Countries must consider this in their own roadmaps. They must ensure supplies of a mix of green fuels, sufficient for every industry that needs them.
0: They must contend with competing priorities, focusing investment on sectors where it will produce the most
1: drastic cuts in emissions. And they must ensure that local businesses' investments in low-carbon technologies are not undermined by cheap imports from rivals with less rigorous regulations. Welcome to
0: Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling.
1: And I'm Rhian Owen.
0: This week, we've partnered with Tarmac to explore how minerals can be processed into building materials without adding to carbon emissions.
1: We'll look at a recent demonstration of a hydrogen-fuelled lime kiln at Tunstead in Derbyshire, which shows one way the sector can transition to carbon-free energy.
0: But switching to carbon-free energy only solves part of the problem the minerals processing industry faces. The bigger challenge lies in the chemical reaction that turns lime into quicklime, which releases vast amounts of carbon. This must be captured and stored if the sector is to achieve net zero.
1: Hydrogen production and carbon capture are emerging technologies. Green hydrogen production will require significant investment, as will the creation of carbon storage facilities. Both will need new or upgraded distribution networks to get hydrogen into facilities and carbon dioxide out.
0: The story behind the demonstration we're looking at today starts hundreds of millions of years ago. In the oceans of the Carboniferous era, marine creatures like mollusks and corals captured calcium and carbon ions from seawater, transforming them into calcium carbonate, which formed their shells and skeletons.
1: These creatures took carbon from the atmosphere, bound it with calcium, and stored it in their bodies. As these sank to the ocean floor, limestone was formed.
0: Millions of years later, a different biological process saw ancient trees, often giant ferns, capture carbon from the atmosphere and through photosynthesis, use it to grow. When this vegetation died without decomposing, either because there was just so much of it in swamp-like conditions, or as some scientists now argue, because the microbes and fungi had not yet evolved the means to break it down, this vegetation formed fossil fuels.
1: Humans learned that calcium carbonate could be burned at high temperatures to release the carbon from lime, turning it into calcium oxide, or quicklime. This highly reactive material can be used in the construction industry and in a range of industrial and consumer products, as tarmac lime plant manager Andy Flanagan explains.
2: Well, for those that don't know, uh, lime is one of the oldest chemical processes in the world. It's produced by heating up crushed limestone calcium carbonate to above 950 degrees in a kiln. The calcium carbonate releases CO2, leaving the calcium oxide, which is the quicklime. The quicklime produced in the kiln can then be further processed to produce calcium hydroxide or ground into powders, and then these products produced are required in many key critical industries within the country such as water treatment, both potable and effluent, pharmaceuticals, scrubbing of the flue gases uh, from energy from waste plants, massively into the construction industry, soil stabilisation, aerated blocks, steel and glass industries and, uh, and, and paper industries, but many, many more, that too many to list. I always remember one from school, which is toothpaste. It's actually in toothpaste.
0: Modern lime production is a continuous process. Those marine skeletal remains enter the kiln on a conveyor. Fossil fuels are burnt, providing the heat needed to produce calcium oxide. Both the chemical process and the fuel used release carbon dioxide that has been stored by nature for hundreds of millions of years.
2: We've got various kiln sets within the within the tarmac lime business. The roughly produce in each kiln will produce between 250 and 400 tonnes of calcium oxide per day. From a lime operation, it's it's a continuous process. It's a continuous work tw- process 24/7 three, six, five days a year. So we, we run the run the sites on a continuous shift pattern in lime production, there's two main sources of CO2. We've got the process CO2 itself, which is unfortunately unavoidable. To produce calcium oxide, we need to drive off the CO2. Uh, And depending on the lime quality, 1,000 kilograms of calcium carbonate, limestone, will produce 560 kilograms of calcium oxide, the finished product, quicklime. Therefore, the Remaining 440 kilograms is CO2, which is produced and goes up, unfortunately, currently up the stack, which is why we're really working heavily on how we capture the process CO2.
1: As Andy says, the release of carbon dioxide through the chemical process of producing quicklime is unavoidable. But the other source of carbon emissions, fuel, can be addressed. And that's what TARMAC and its partners at the Minerals Product Association, or MPA, first set out to address with the recent trial, which was backed by the UK government.
0: Diana Casey is the director of Cement and Lime and Energy and Climate Change at the Mineral Products Association.
3: The government have been keen to understand um, or to accelerate fuel switching in, in across different industrial sectors, and they had some funding to support trials and feasibility studies first actually and then some demonstrations of different fuel switching options and MPA was successful for three lots of funding actually first of all a feasibility study looking at fuel switching in the cement sector and then leading on from that two studies one in cement and one in lime testing that fuel mix so For the cement side, we actually split our demonstration into two. So we tested hydrogen and waste biomass in a cement kiln. And then we tested the use of plasma or electrical heating in a cement calciner. And these are different parts of the cement manufacturing plant. And then on the lime side, we tested the use of hydrogen to replace natural gas. The aim of the trial was to make an incremental switch from natural gas to hydrogen. And it was looking at testing not just the impact on the lime product quality, but also what the impact on the kiln system might be. We also used it to understand more about the regulatory constraints around the use of hydrogen and also how the hydrogen could be delivered to the site and the costs involved in that.
0: The sector relies heavily on natural gas, Removing this from the process would have a significant impact on its emissions. But it will not be able to switch over to 100% hydrogen overnight. Generation and distribution capacity will be built up over time. So kilns must be able to accept increasing concentrations of hydrogen mixed in with natural gas over a period of years.
2: Within tarmac, we're we're naturally gas fired we're looking at approximately one third of the CO2 produced comes from the fuel, and two thirds of the CO2 produced comes from the process. So we can, from a carbon reduction perspective, we've we've got to look at both areas of how we we can reduce our impact in the Buxton area for. Well, hundreds thousands of years they were lime was produced by burning wood coal wooden and coal and ultimately um back till the 1970s on the tunstead and hindlow sites here the, the kilns were coal fired coal fired and then as the uh, natural gas infrastructure was developed across the country then um it, that, that opened up the opportunity to natural gas uh, which obviously is is a, a nice cleaner fuel um, and um, again as, as as things sustainably progress at that point moving from coal to natural gas was it was a great environmental improvement we didn't have black plumes of smoke coming out of the the stacks from from the lime production in the area but now we're moving we need to move to the next stage so Tarmac volunteered to carry out the hydrogen trial on one of its shaft kilns in, in, in Tunstead with a notion that if successful, any learns could be carried through to other perceived easier kiln operation, like a a parallel flow PFR kiln. We determined that if we could successfully burn a blend or 100% hydrogen on a shaft kiln, it would then be able to be transferred to the other kiln uh, types within the the BLA companies.
0: The trial was supported by the UK government, initially through Bayes, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. When Bayes was split into three separate departments in February 2023, this support was continued by its successors, the Department for Energy, Security and Net Zero and the Department for Business and Trade. Fergus Harrendentz is the Deputy Director for Infrastructure, Construction and Rail in the Department for Business and Trade. He explains why the government wanted to support this trial and the wider transition to low carbon fuels in industry.
4: The construction product sector, which includes mineral products and and mineral processing, has a turnover of around £55 billion a year or about 1.2% of all of UK GDP. It's a sector that employs about 300,000 people across over 20,000 firms. And it's one that makes a significant contribution to the regional economy across England, but also in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And it's a really important foundation sector for the economy because without the products that it produces, we can't build and maintain the infrastructure and homes that the UK needs. And it's also a sector that supplies other sectors with key products for example things like the pharmaceutical sector as well as helping to improve the environment through recycling waste and remediating disused sites globally cement production accounts for around about seven percent of all carbon emissions and it is the most significant source of industrial emissions and it's primarily due to its energy intensity and the fact that it uses a lot of fossil fuels to heat the kills. In the UK the proportion of our carbon emissions attributed to cement are a lot lower at one and a half percent which reflects how successful the UK industry has been at decarbonising. And it's reduced its emissions by over 50% since 1990. So it's made really significant progress in uh, becoming more sustainable. However, cement and concrete do still account for um, a large proportion of the embodied carbon, particularly in infrastructure. And it's vital that we keep uh, working in order to reduce and ultimately to eliminate that. One component of the UK government's
0: support for reducing emissions is the industrial fuel switching competition which helped fund the hydrogen lime kiln demonstration at Tunstead, as well as projects looking at cement production.
4: It's a £55 million competition run by the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, which aims to accelerate the development of innovative clean energy technologies and processes for a range of industrial applications. So what it's really trying to do is encourage switching from high carbon fuels, diesel, natural gas, for example, to alternatives such as hydrogen, uh, electricity that's been generated from renewable sources or biomass. And it's a two-phase competition. The first phase supported 21 feasibility studies aimed at identifying the most promising potential innovations in this area. And the second phase, which will run between this year and 2025, aims to support the most promising projects to develop further and move from the, the, the state of factory successful experiments to technologies that are not that far removed from the market.
1: The trial would assess how lime kilns performed and any impacts on their maintenance and lifespan if hydrogen replaced fossil fuels either partially or completely.
2: There a lot of work went into the initial looking at the project scope, um, and we, we, we set off uh, on a journey at looking at the various blends that were, prob- working with, again, with the base of, of what were the probable blends that the country was maybe put into the network. So we started a 6% energy so, which is 20% by volume. Um, so we mixed we, we mixed the uh, the hydrogen with with the, the natural gas that we were currently burning. So we, we turned down the natural gas fuel and then it, um, increased the hydrogen fuel so that we got the same energy, the correct energy per kilogram of, of limestone in the kiln so that to protect the kiln. So we did 6%, which was 6% blend, then a 23% blend, When we did four-hour initial trial to test all the safety systems, see any initial impact. And then we did the longer 24-hour trials at each each ratio. And then we did a a 50% by energy blend. And then we did, for a short period of time, did 100% on hydrogen, which we believe is the first fully hydrogen-fueled, lime produced, um, I've even heard in, in the world actually, not just in the UK.
0: The trial allowed Tarmac to consider a number of potential impacts of the shift to hydrogen.
2: Hydrogen's got a higher flame temperature than natural gas. So when we are applying the heat in the burning zone to for the for the separation of the CO2, that increases the risk of actual fusion of the limestone. One of the concerns we had was if whether the impact would cause fusion and ultimately block the kiln and, and uh, could have catastrophic effects. So that had to be measured and evaluated during the, the HAZOP process. Also, the impact on refractory lining because of the in- increased temperature, so refractory wear from a shaft kiln perspective we looked to run the kiln for 10 years from uh, realign, so it was whether there was it uh, increased this speed of wear due to the higher temperatures breaking down the chemicals in the refractory bricks differently to the natural gas the third area that we needed to to manage really from an operation was that when you burn hydrogen we it obviously gives off water So we needed to measure the impact of that within the exhaust systems and the bag filters for corrosion due to the increased moisture in the waste gas.
1: As Andy and his colleagues gradually increased the hydrogen composition of the fuel used for the kiln, they saw what they wanted to see, nothing.
2: How this was measured as a a real success was that it was one of the projects that you didn't want to see change. We we actually wanted to see consistency with with natural gas operation. The success was seeing no change or limited change to the operation. Certainly through the blended trials, uh, we saw very little change.
3: The outcome of the project was that at low levels of hydrogen substitution, so around 20% by volume, there was limited impact on the kiln operation, the product or any emissions to air. Now, we did notice that as those volumes of hydrogen increased, there were some challenges in terms of the kiln operation. We had to be careful with the sintering process, which um, happens with the lime, and and kiln blockages were also a little bit of a threat. But these, these weren't insurmountable issues, and I, I think it was a really successful trial in demonstrating that hydrogen is viable for the lime sector in future.
1: As Diana says, the trials did show where challenges would occur. But these are anticipated and can be addressed as hydrogen is adopted in the UK pipeline system. One
0: challenge was the impact of increased moisture in waste gases. During the trial, this concentration of moisture could be reduced through the Tunsted plant's shared exhaust system.
2: We did have other running kilns that we could dilute with uh, and protect that, so it wasn't a risk just running one kiln. They've got a common exhaust, yes, they've got a common exhaust system, so it would be something that be more seriously considered if we were solely on hydrogen for the, for the battery of kilns.
1: Hydrogen has a lower calorific value than fossil fuels. A 20% proportion of hydrogen by volume produces a 6% contribution to heat. That will pose a challenge to distribution networks, as will the smaller size of hydrogen molecules, which makes leaks harder to prevent.
0: But it also burns hotter, and the impact of that needed to be considered when using it as a fuel for kilns, like those at Tunstead. These high heats near the flame could cause materials to melt and fuse together, blocking systems. And it might cause the bricks lining the kiln to wear more quickly.
2: We worked uh, heavily with the uh, refractory bricks suppliers and looked at the specifications of the bricks that we, we currently use. and and we believed we'd get roughly around uh, an extra 150 degrees flame temperature. That's flame temperature, that's not lime temperature. The refactory suppliers were comfortable that the, the refactory linings that we had in our kilns would, wouldn't see drastic uh, reduction in lifetime. We determined for a long period on 100% hydrogen, then we would have to, have to look, at, look at how we could reduce flame temperature because of the risk, the risk of fusion would be too too great.
1: Despite these challenges, Andy reckons that tarmac is ready to move to initial use of a twenty percent by volume, or six percent by energy hydrogen natural gas mix.
2: Sites would need to invest in upgrading of their gas control systems and park networks because the hydrogen's got a smaller molecule, and so is. Um, more leak seeking, shall we say? And so, yeah, we had to upgrade all our equipment for the hydrogen. But it's certainly possible once it comes into a blend on site with minimum investment. That uh, I'd certainly be very comfortable to put it into into the into the tons, tarmac tundsted operation at top six percent energy blend.
0: A trial like this helps Tarmac, the MPA and the UK government to assess a potential obstacle on the road to net zero. But that is only part of building the roadmap. Experts like Arusa Adizier, net zero manager at Tarmac, must consider each of the ways their organisation contributes to climate change and assess how these can be eliminated.
5: Our parent company, CRH, made uh, a net zero commitment, so they released updated an updated net zero target um, earlier this year, and Tarmac um, as one of their operating companies is aligned with their target. And so our roadmap is shows the realistic and achievable steps that um, Tarmac as a company um, are going to take um, to reach net zero uh, by 2050. And obviously net, uh, 2050 is a, a long time away, but probably will come quicker than we, we expect. So having this roadmap and having a target for where we want to reach in 2030 will help us ensure that we're taking those steps to reach net zero by 2050. Our 2030 roadmap that we've just released, it shows the initiatives that um, we know will be quite important for us to reduce our emissions. Um, but then it's also quite a good summary of you know, what we've done so far and yeah where we want to go. This company. We looked in detail into the emissions from scope one, scope two and scope three. So the emissions from the fuels um, that we use and from process emissions and then from the electricity that we use and then also from our supply chain. So it's kind of splitting our different emissions into those buckets helps you focus your attention and gives you structure and to what you can do for each of those scope emissions. And um, a lot of those um, are related to our operational emissions. So uh, that kind of gives us an idea about what we want to do um, when we're producing our product and, on site and how we can reduce the emissions.
1: Not every path on the tarmac roadmap is as technologically groundbreaking as the hydrogen lime kiln. Some are just
0: good business planning. The company invested, before the energy crisis, in contracts for the
1: supply of renewable energy. It also has invested in electric vehicles.
5: We are converting our car and van fleet to the electric uh, version. Um, I've got my electric car that came um, earlier this year, which I'm loving.
0: And as we saw back in episode 201, the company has been pushing the limits of electric vehicle technology with a new battery-powered concrete mixer.
1: But some emissions must be tackled as part of a broader roadmap, one that goes beyond tarmac or CRH to the wider minerals processing industry and to the country as a whole.
5: As a company that makes cement and makes lime, um, we understand that we have those unavoidable process emissions and carbon capture is a way for you to to completely reduce all the emissions from cement and lime manufacture. But that's something that you know a lot of companies were considering um, how we can do that in the best, most cost-effective way um, as tarmac and then as part of CRH Group as well.
3: The process emissions that arise because of the chemical reaction aren't going to be mitigated through fuel switching. So, so, we have this big problem um, in the sector that only carbon capture will touch, to be honest. So, so in our roadmap, in the MPA roadmaps that have been published, carbon capture contributes at least 60% of emissions reduction compared to the sort of 2018 level of emissions. Now, some of the challenges associated with carbon capture relate to the position, the location of the sites, and their access to transport and storage infrastructure, which is going to be really key.
0: As Diana explains, successfully capturing, transferring and storing carbon from these process emissions must be addressed by the sector as a whole and in collaboration with other sectors and the UK government.
3: These sites have large point sources of process emissions and somehow we have to capture them Once you've captured it, that's part of the challenge. Once you've captured it, it's then getting it from the site to either storage or where it might be able to be used. Uh, And the location of these sites, some are in clusters. So we've got one member with a plant up in the high Neck cluster. Tarmac have Abathor in the South Wales cluster. Um, and Dunbar is is close but not actually in the Grangemouth cluster so but there are other sites that are very isolated and in quite rural locations and it's going to be a challenge working out how to remove this carbon dioxide that they've captured so some might be able to connect to those clusters through pipelines so in may there was something called the peak cluster that launched which tarmac is part of um along with a couple of our the members and um, some line members as well and they have a plan of how they can use a pipeline connected to the high net cluster to to take the co2 from each of their plants so it's almost like a co2 aggregation where they get the co2 from each of the plants and then it goes into the pipeline and that's great to have that kind of plan there and seen. Other sites might be looking at having to rail their CO two off the plant, or even use trucks to take the CO two off the plant.
1: Arusa and her colleagues must look at how CRH and tarmac will access carbon storage as it becomes available.
5: We have a global um, technical team who are working, who are dedicated to. Um, carbon capture, understanding the different uh, options, different technologies, having those conversations with uh, various companies. And they will um, make that decision and share that with the different operating companies and will um, take into account different environments.
0: And they're also working with peers outside the company.
5: We are part of the uh, peak cluster and that relates back to what we're talking about in terms of collaboration, so uh, cement and lime manufacturers in the region uh, um, sharing their understanding and sharing their knowledge to develop uh, that carbon capture pipeline. It's all about collaborating with each other, and that's the only way that we'll definitely reach net zero and definitely reduce our emissions in these clusters that we
1: have. Carbon capture is an emerging sector. So too is hydrogen production. The UK government is working to support the development of green hydrogen in order to help meet the demands of sectors like lime and cement production that cannot rely on electric power.
0: The did trials form part of
4: this strategy, Fergus explains. It was consistent with our strategic policy objectives in relation to decarbonisation, but also uh, helping to support the transition to the hydrogen economy. And that links in with the other strategic objective of ensuring the adequate supply of affordable energy within the UK. This was a high quality project with very considerable potential, not just for time, but also for for wider use across the industry, uh, potentially into other sectors, but it could also become uh, a, a, a product that could ultimately help us to create the hydrogen economy by creating a market demand for hydrogen in the UK.
0: The transition to hydrogen also forms part of the UK government's own net zero roadmap.
4: Well, we see hydrogen as a vital part of the future energy mix for the UK. So we've published the UK Hydrogen Strategy, which sets the objective of building 10 gigawatts of green hydrogen production capacity in the UK by 2030. We also published the hydrogen investment roadmap and we're going to be investing £240 million pounds in support of that through the net zero hydrogen fund and we hope that this will enable us to support um, the development of around 250 megawatts of hydrogen production capacity through its first round with a second round which should be launched in late 2023 aiming to support a further 750 megawatts of hydrogen production capacity so what we want to do is to use government funding um, to capitalise private sector investment helping to attract hopefully hundreds of millions of pounds of investment and deliver a pipeline of projects that will create overall 20 gigawatts of hydrogen production capacity by 2037.
1: The potential problem for the minerals processing industry is that it might find itself competing with other sectors. Heavy transport and domestic heating, for example, for supplies of green hydrogen.
3: The government certainly have strong ambitions to ramp up and accelerate hydrogen production. From our point of view, the the hydrogen as it becomes available really needs to be prioritised where there are no other options Domestic heating, I would argue, electricity is probably a better route for that. I think industry and things like heavy transport are are quite key. Also things like non-road mobile machinery, so some of the, the yellow plant that we use in quarries, it's they're gonna be quite difficult to electrify, I think, and, and hydrogen could be the answer for those as well.
4: I think in, in the short term, Um, because of the lack of infrastructure and the fact that we haven't got a developed hydrogen economy, the priority is going to be investing in production capacity, probably infrastructure related to sites where there is a concentration of demand and actually trying to create a sufficient level of demand for hydrogen that you start to get a viable hydrogen economy. And so for the period between now and 2030, I think the priority will be to develop the technologies linked to achieving those objectives and that these are really the the first essential steps that we have to take before we start thinking about potentially pumping hydrogen into pipeline networks and and using it for domestic uses but I mean there are numerous potential uses for hydrogen Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see it used in industry shipping rail heavy plant and machinery in the construction sector, potentially for energy generation in certain areas. It's quite hard to see which of these um, technologies, these areas will develop first and the extent to which hydrogen will become the source of energy that those use, whether it will be almost the the sole source, whether it will be part of a much wider energy mix. And ultimately, I suspect the market will make those choices rather than government. But In the short term, I would say that the main uses are likely to be where the production and and consumption of hydrogen can occur quite close together, simply because it minimises the infrastructure and transportation costs for everybody. And that means that I think we will be looking at industrial clusters, other heavy industrial uses, particularly in energy intensive industries where other sources of energy will be insufficient, to meet the demand that those facilities have.
0: Geology gives the mineral sector something of an advantage when it comes to purchasing hydrogen. Mineral extraction and processing naturally clusters around sources of raw materials, like limestone
3: these sites could be anchor points for you know, hydrogen producers. And we have been approached by a number of hydrogen producers looking at what the demands are, where those demands are, how they might be able to help with meeting that demand. We offer, particularly the lime plants, there's almost like a, a certain demand there, you know, like a confirmed demand that they know they, that, that will sit there and be there for a while, which I think is useful when you're investing in that hydrogen production.
1: Completing the journey to net zero will require everyone to have a roadmap.
0: Tarmac's roadmap will see it switch to electric vehicles, powered by renewables and improve energy efficiency across the business. It will replace fossil fuels at kilns with green hydrogen, and it will explore how processed carbon can be captured and stored, as well as reducing the carbon from other manufacturing processes, such as asphalt production. Warm mix asphalt, which uses less energy to heat, is now the standard product.
1: The MPA's roadmap will consider these questions for the sector as a whole. How can the results of trials like that at Tunstead be shared across the sector? How can clusters of plants source the hydrogen they need reliably and affordably? And how can they capture processed carbon and send it for storage?
0: And the UK government's roadmap must consider how to encourage the supply of hydrogen and carbon capture facilities in a way that delivers the strongest emissions reductions.
1: But the journey to net zero is a global one. There is nearly unanimous agreement between countries that we must cut emissions.
0: But different countries have different priorities. Some are more threatened by climate change. Others are still working to lift their population out of poverty. For countries where growth is a pressing issue, reducing carbon emissions will be a less pressing concern. If they are able to export high carbon building materials to countries that are investing in low carbon alternatives, we will only see emissions moved, not reduced.
3: This competitiveness aspect of decarbonisation is really important for our sector. The UK has already seen cement imports increase in terms of market share. So now we're about 26% of the markets from imports, and that's just been a steady increase over the last couple of decades. So, so this is really key for us. We would like to see a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So so this is a carbon tax at the border that is paid on the embodied CO2 of imports coming into the country. And the idea is that those imports are then just paying the same as what we pay as domestic producers. And then the customer won't see a difference if you, in terms of the cost, and instead they can start selecting in terms of other, other things, like hopefully carbon.
1: Other countries have already started taking steps to protect local producers from dumping of low-cost, high-carbon materials.
3: We've seen with the EU that are also driving a kind of carbon border adjustment mechanism policy that it has got those countries that export into the EU thinking about their own carbon agenda and carbon policy because, you know, by by putting a carbon price in their own country they can mitigate some of that cost. And it's just been quite interesting to see kind of some of the reactions to, to that.
0: Shortly before this episode first aired, in August of 2023, the Australian government announced that it was looking to develop a cross-border adjustment mechanism, which would ensure a level playing field for its own low-carbon producers.
1: It's a topic that is currently being considered by the UK government, which aims to address competitiveness in two ways. First, through helping create a market for these products with clear environmental standards, and by looking at tools like those used by the EU and Australia.
4: Government policy is to ensure there is a level playing field in in, in relation to uh, all products, particularly carbon-intensive ones, and to protect against carbon leakage. So in the short term, I think there is the possibility to use some of the established standards and measurement techniques which you can firms in your supply chain to apply to the products that they want to sell into the market if you want to have a degree of assurance about the robustness of the carbon measurement and, and the data that sits behind it. In the medium to longer term, well, the government finished consulting on a UK carbon border adjustment mechanism last month and my expectation is that we'll be taking forward the development of policy on that over the next year or two and obviously we will be in communication with the European Union about their own proposals during that period.
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and Ryan Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own low-emissions cartographer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our partner for this episode, Tarmap, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.